0: our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us yet another day to worship you in the solitude of this local assembly, for making this day a reality, and for taking the time through your divine patience to remind us of all there is to be thankful for. Your word says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing and everything give thanks, for this is your will for us in Christ Jesus. May we continue to learn to see the forest through the trees, to see it all as truth, and to be increasingly set free from the cords of the flesh and the life we had built around it. We pray for those not with us this morning, that they be encouraged as well. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. May it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message is a continuation of some fantastic principles we've been learning now for a couple of months. On the topic or topics plural of the gospel salvation and sanctification, and it's funny that um, those three things are often, I think just by virtue of them being three separate words, it conjures up three separate thoughts even. But what the Spirit started on Thursday was the idea that we shouldn't think of them separately. We should think of them all at once, as one sort of package deal uh, that God gives the believer by grace. And we ought not hyper doctrinalize or carve out too many categories of doctrines. Uh, as we continue to learn, uh, we might have the casualty of losing the big picture. And I think that's what the Spirit's going to continue to work on this morning with you. Just one last word um, on Tuesday evenings uh, that is forthcoming. I'll share with, what, with you what the Spirit has to say about Tuesday evenings moving forward. But just a friendly reminder, um, you are sitting here because God desi- decided you needed to hear the details of these lessons. And some are seeing things totally afresh, totally anew. But don't be arrogant and say you're not learning anything new. That would be ridiculous. And this is what I have to say on that subject. Arrogance is unteachable. So even if you've never verbalized it, but you sit in your chair in your high perch and you say, I don't have anything to learn. I already understood all this stuff. Well, you are one arrogant individual. And to whatever degree that arrogance abides in you, to that degree you are stunted. Careful you don't have too high an estimation of yourself. For some of you, the, quote, missing Tuesday night lessons or classes have proven something very real to you. And I encourage all of you to think along these lines. Many people say, oh, I have faith. That's right. I go to class or I get them online, etc. Faithfully but as the Spirit has taught us with the only other series currently posted on the website, which was justification by faith. Here's a principle from that series. Too many people, even some that falsely believe that they are saved, do not understand this criticality or this critically important distinction that a person is saved by faith not by faithfulness. The person that is an unbeliever is, not, is saved by faith, not by faithfulness. And even a person who's already saved is delivered. Remember, salvation and deliverance are somewhat interchangeable depending on the context of the passage. But a saved person, even, is delivered or saved by faith, not by faithfulness. You might say, well, you know, the point on the board is talking about unbelievers. And in that moment, we were. However, the overarching principle for believers is that salvation, deliverance, is a function of faith, not faithfulness. In other words, if you were among the crowd that was proclaiming faithfulness while Tuesday evening classes were still in the rotation, however, when these classes were removed and your attention to the spiritual life waned significantly, if you think about it, even one iota proves the point. If that has been you, then the Spirit has been trying to prove a point to you, namely that your faith was unproven. Go to 1 Peter 1.6. 1 Peter 1.6 So if your quote-unquote faithfulness waned somehow at the loss of a formal class on Tuesday evenings, then the faith that you proclaimed as a function of your faithfulness was spurious, wasn't real. And when it got tested, it failed. 1 Peter 1.6 In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials... You know, I got all kinds of feedback when Tuesdays went to the side for a time, and some people, frankly, that really enjoy face-to-face teaching, it was like a trial for them. They actually had a little bit of lament over it. Like, I'm really going to miss Tuesday evenings. But it's funny because those, most of the same people that I know of were not in the boat the Spirit's picking on right now. They found other ways to get truth. They stayed true to faith or faithfulness as a fruit of true faith. Verse 7, So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This has been for the last six or so years one of the most popular verses from this pulpit. I don't know how many times I've said the Greek word dokimion, the proof of your faith, up here in the board. The proof from dokimion means a test, it's an act of testing, derives from an assayer's terminology. Remember, an assayer is a person who mixes metals and is able to test the purity of metals the proof of your faith is meant to edify the true Christian by putting said faith to the test by fire. So you are edified, you are built up, grace upon grace, as we looked at last week. But at the end of the day, the proof of your faith is meant to edify the true Christian by putting said faith to the test by fire. So the principle here is simple. A person's faith must be tested in order for their own confidence in it to be established. Otherwise, one never really knows. And the Bible is a okay with that. The Bible says testing your faith is part of what goes on in the spiritual life. And it's a very good thing. And it's exceptionally good to the person who actually already possesses said faith because there's a sense of reassurance that happens when that faith holds up under fire. So the principle is simple. A person's faith must be tested in order for their own confidence in it to be established. Otherwise, one never really knows. For the person with true faith, testing then reassures them. When they're put to the test, like the loss of Tuesday evening classes where they were so-called... Faithful to coming to church. But then the object of their faithfulness disappeared, which left them alone with their so-called faith. And when that was tested, for some it failed. So for the person with true faith, testing reassures them. However, as is the point the Spirit's making right now with let's call it the Tuesday evening experiment. For others who lack faith, they are not given a sense of assurance, but rather are shown that their faith was, at best, faith in their own faithfulness, which is human good. Let me say that again. For others, this Tuesday evening experiment proved something that they really did lack faith. So in that sense, they are not given a sense of assurance, but rather are shown that their faith was, at best, faith in their own faithfulness, which is really just human good. In other words, for those of you who have squandered the previously set aside Tuesday time of, and I'm going to go out on a limb because most people have to have a little bit of travel time, and even the local people get here 15 minutes early or so. So the whole ordeal is about—it's not everybody's like, "Oh, I got one hour back." No, you don't. You get somewhere north of two hours because then you have to, you know, like DJ has to primp his hair, and he, you know, and all the single people are putting on their spray, and you know, it's this whole thing that goes on, right? So for some people, it's like four hours. But I always think that's funny as well because, oh, I got an hour back. So as long as I do this hour thing, no, you really probably have two hours, right? In the case of, like, Billy and Brenda, who travel an hour to get here, that's at least three hours, maybe three and a half. So for those of you who have squandered the previously set-aside Tuesday time of, let's just say, two hours, well, you have some things to think about. It seems the Spirit has made his point with that crowd. It seems now that he's about to bring back Tuesday classes, that crowd ought to be that much more motivated to keep learning the Word. In other words, if the Spirit points out, your faith got tested and it failed, that should be motivation for you to learn that much more, to be that much more involved in the endeavor itself. So he is about to bring back Tuesday classes. And that crowd ought to be much more motivated to keep learning the Word. Not with so-called faithfulness in view, but rather for the aim of receiving more faith by grace, which is James 4.6 says, God gives grace to who? The humble. So may you be humbled if that little Tuesday evening class experiment Prove to you something. May you be humbled by it. This group must examine their own hearts very closely and see where their allegiances lie. Matthew 6.21 Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the little experiment proves something to some folks let's close out Peter's thoughts on this verse 1 7 again so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ and though you have not seen him you love him and though you do not see him now but believe in him you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation, this is where deliverance could be used as well because there are believers in view, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation or the deliverance of your souls. To our previous point, Applying lessons from our two-part series on justification by faith up here in the board. Too many people, even some that falsely believe that they are saved, do not understand this critically important distinction. A person is saved by faith, not by faithfulness. In other words, if you apply that even to believers, a person is delivered by faith. Not by faithfulness. You're not going to somehow be increasingly sanctified just because you have faith in your faithfulness. I have faith that I'll show up regularly to church. Well, that's a misplaced faith, you see. Peter is leaning on the same underlying principle that salvation or deliverance is a function of faith. The other key principle from our previous series on justification by faith was this. And these go out to the confused sinner. If you think that the act of faithfulness called out as fruit of faith in the Bible is the basis of your justification, you are deceived. That is your flesh trying to stake a claim to some sort of a work of your own. Now, if we synthesize the base principles of salvation never being by faithfulness, then we can certainly apply it to the spiritual life. In using the, quote, Tuesday evening experiment as our point of application, a person may show up to classes faithfully. However, when their so-called faith is actually put to the test, it may fail. A person may show up to classes faithfully. However, when their so-called faith is actually put to the test, it may fail. In that case, we can conclude that their Tuesday nights were something being acted out faithfully, however, without pure faith. Their Tuesday nights were something being acted out faithfully. However, without pure faith. You know, I was thinking about this. There are a lot of Christians out there, quote unquote, that go to church on Sundays and this act is repeatedly faithfully or repeated faithfully. No one could ever argue that. However, they lack true faith. Some may not even be saved. Again, the point of this little exercise, looking back at the eight weeks so far of, quote, missing Tuesdays, we might in retrospect then consider this the Holy Spirit's testing of your faith. And make it personal right now. You might consider the last couple of months. God the Holy Spirit's testing of your faith. Looking back, how did you fare with those with that two-hour or more time slot? How did you fare? For many of you, your faith was ratified by your continued eagerness to take that time and dedicate it to personal studies. Heck, I even gave everyone in the congregation a book. However, for others of you, it proved that your faithfulness to Tuesday night classes wasn't from faith, at least not in the purest sense of the word. So as of now, I'm assuming Tuesday night classes will be returning to the rotation after I return from my Thanksgiving vacation, so please plan accordingly. And if I did my math right, forgive me if I didn't, I believe that's December 1st. December 1st will be the restart of Tuesday evening classes moving forward, unless he, I don't know, says, you know what, they still didn't learn their lesson, even after Sunday morning. Then maybe it's January 1st. I don't know. I can always find things to do, trust me. But for now, December 1st will be the restart of Tuesday evening classes moving forward. And just on a personal note, I miss you guys. It's like I was missing my family. But I don't have that luxury to override him. If he says drop Tuesdays for eight weeks or more, then I have to do it. And it doesn't matter what my sense of, you know, Personal lament is. But that's where it sits right now. It looks like the Spirit desires that I keep the once a week blog. Have you, have you noticed, or as you've noticed, I've only been writing one blog a week. It's probably going to stay at one for now so that I can focus my Mondays to publications. Continuing with the book, I've got, now I've got two books. With that said, let's get back to the topic of grace, shall we? And these are exciting times. Anytime he gives me the opportunity, it's always that dichotomy. I want you to teach on grace. Yeah, uh uh-oh. It's like, yeah, uh uh-oh. Yes, like, this is going to be fun and awesome and encouraging. Uh Uh-oh. Am I going to get in the way? Am I going to somehow, as a human being, miss the mark. It's just when you understand grace the abundance of it um, the the unfathomable (laughs) grace it can be daunting as a teacher let me just put it that way and that's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that that's just a healthy respect for what it means to all of us Just so you know, the Spirit's going to take this morning's time to first clear the air regarding those who taste grace but then turn away from it. And while he's teaching us this, remember that the reason why a person is able to turn away from God's grace is a heart issue. Nothing else. I've heard just about Every excuse known to churchdom, to Christendom, as to why a person leaves a church or why they've never gone back to church or why they've started doubting their faith, all this kind of a thing. I've heard just about every excuse, I think. Of course, you know what's going to happen. Sometime this week I'm going to hear another one. And God the Holy Spirit going to stop being cocky. You didn't hear everything. I hear everything. You don't. So here's another one, just to brighten your day. (laughs) But just remember that the only way a person can turn away from something as magnificent as God's grace is because they have a real heart issue. There's really no fleshly or worldly reason why God's grace wouldn't be received. There's no real excuse other than a heart that is arrogant that's not humble, that doesn't want to receive God's grace. We know dogmatically God's will is that all are saved and come to the knowledge of Him, First Timothy 2.4, so we know that He's going to do everything possible to reveal His grace to you. Go to First 1 Timothy 1.15. We began on Thursday with this passage. 1 Timothy 1.15 So really, if you get down to the brass tacks, the only person who doesn't receive grace is the arrogant person. The one who's humble is chomping at the bit. 1 Timothy 1.15 It is a trustworthy statement. Deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. How does God or the God man, says Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? How does the God man go about saving us? Grace. Of course, by grace. That's what we learn. Succinctly in Ephesians 2 8 and 9, for what? By grace you have been saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's what grace is. We might consider it, you know, grace is the vehicle, faith is the channel through which it is provided. Grace is the vehicle, faith is the channel to which it is provided. Romans eleven six 6 appear on the board. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That's the beauty of grace. That all the heavy lifting is God's. Paul continues with his encouragement to Timothy as the Steward of God's grace, Ephesians 3 2. And you have to learn to share in Paul's perspective on all of this. And this was that overarching concept that the Spirit was getting at on Thursday evening. It's a perspective issue. It's what I said about the title, even at the start of this morning's class, about dissecting everything so that everything's sort of neatly categorized out over here and over there and over there. I mean, people even do it with the so-called essence of God or the fruit of the Spirit. They say, oh, there's nine of those and it's this, 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 and this. And they make this mistake by categorizing them out and hyper them out that God's only going to work in any one of those things at a, at a time. But it's impossible. He... His essence is all of it. So you have to learn to share in Paul's perspective on all of this. Let me do it this or say it this way. To Paul, the gospel was a reality, not a past experience, not something that he toted around in a portfolio. He didn't have little coins with... First, uh, John 3.16 on the back. To him it was life itself. It was eternal life. It was a reality. To, to Paul, the gospel was his reality. It was his oxygen. It was everything to him. And there was no crazy distinction between this doctrine and that doctrine. They were all by the grace of God. And they were all contiguous Confluent? All put together? All one reality. Let me sort of seeming like I'm, you know, waxing poetic and getting all like, you know, hmm, it's all one thing. But I'm not. I mean, this was Paul's reality. It wasn't a past experience. Romans 1, 16 to 17. So when he wrote to Timothy, it was from that reality. Again, I think too many people think of the gospel as being behind them somehow. Been there, done that. I'm saved. Let's move on to the higher ground. Let's dig out some Hebrew and some Greek so I can stick my pinky out with my cup at the parties. Did you know the Greek word? Jokey, Maya. Because I do. The, look, the gospel is everything. Amen? It's everything. You're going to heaven if you're a believer. That's everything. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. What? Be thankful for everything that's the will of god rejoice always pray without ceasing do those things that's the will of god but that's not going to be you unless the gospel is your living reality and if you read between the lines with anything that paul wrote you see it he says it from time to time All oh, i want to know If he was honest to goodness, if he walked into this room, he would say, I believe it's Galatians 2.2, somewhere, 2.20 maybe. Somewhere in Galatians 2. If he walked in here right now, he would say, listen. I don't know if that's how we would talk, but he strikes me as kind of a direct man. So, Listen, all I want to know is Christ and Christ crucified. That's it. I don't know about your faithfulness or how many pies you baked last week for the church. I don't want to know. That's lovely, don't get me wrong. Thank you very much. Right? I'm kind of hungry. People are trying to kill me. <laughs> Gotta get out of here. Right? That's not it at all. At the end of the day, he also said, I know how to get along with or without you know, meat pie or apple pie or Snickers bars or Kit Kats or Twix bars. Want a funny experiment? Put a, put a bunch of Twix bars out and time it. If Scott or Michael are anywhere in the vicinity, 30 seconds. I don't care how many are in there. Add Monica, it might be 10. And there might be some fights. And my money's on Monica. (laughs) I kid. Listen, to Paul, the gospel was a reality, not a past experience. And that's what the Spirit's trying to say to you. Shake it out. Remember how much He's done for you at salvation. So, when He wrote to Timothy, it was from that reality that He wrote. Look at 1 Timothy 1.18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Let me give you Jamieson Fawcett and Brown on this passage up here on the board. Made shipwreck with respect to the faith. In other words, the collective of doctrines, if you would, the faith. Faith is the vessel in which they had professedly embarked, of which... Quote, good conscience is the anchor. The ancient church often used this image comparing the course of faith to navigation. The Greek does not imply that one having once had faith makes shipwreck of it, but that they who put away good conscience make shipwreck with respect to the faith. Now, this takes us to that clearing the air that I alluded to earlier. Namely, that the Bible speaks of those who hear the gospel of grace, understand it even, and then turn away from it. What's the only reason you can't receive grace? A lack of humility. So you can, your mind can understand the gospel truth can understand, that Je- even agree that Jesus Christ lived, hung on a cross, died for the sins of the world. But you might say in your heart of hearts, I don't need a Savior. because if I say that in church, they'll probably ask me to leave. And then my faithfulness will be destroyed. And I have faith in my faithfulness, so therefore my self-esteem will go out the window with it. So, shh. But God sees the heart. So the Bible speaks of those who hear the gospel of grace, understand it even, and then turn away from it. We call these folks apostates. From the Greek word apostasia, as we'll see this morning. Verse 20 speaks to a couple. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. In context here, up on the board, from the Expositors Greek Testament, Hymenaeus and Alexander were the ringleaders of those who had suffered shipwreck. There is no sufficient reason to suppose that this Hymenaeus is different from the heretic of the same name in 2 Timothy 2.17, where his error is more precisely defined. So these two men were apostates who suffered the shipwreck that Paul was alluding to. Let's grab a little context on this. Hold your thumb there. Go to 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15. So the Bible speaks enough and with enough frequency that we have confidence that every church has two types of religious folks in it. Every church. They're both religious. They're both, quote, faithful to the church. But some are believers and some are unbelievers. And some prove themselves unbelievers by walking away eventually. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus, there's the guy, and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. And just for a little context there, there are hints of Gnosticism circulating during that time. And all I worked on in 1 John, we should remember what that was all about. Again, up here in the board, Hymenaeus and Alexander were the ringleaders of those who had suffered shipwreck. There is no sufficient reason to suppose that this Hymenaeus is different from the heretic of the same name in 2 Timothy 2.17, which we just read, where his error is more precisely defined. Okay, go back to 1 Timothy 1.18, where Paul continues to encourage from that gospel reality his underling. He loved Timothy. He was like a son to him. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So hopefully you see the dynamic that's going on here. Paul's encouraging him To highlight, live, stick it out with the gospel, fight the good fight, because there's always antagonism from without, sometimes even from within. There seems to be some debate, just to be fair to the global viewpoint on some of this, there seems to be some debate among theologians regarding the salvation status of those who rejected their own good conscience But I believe it's safe to say that at least some of those in view here were unbelievers, pointing to apostasy. And that pivots on the word some, but we're not going to get into that. One has to accept that a true believer's faith could somehow be totally destroyed or shipwrecked in order to indicate or include true believers into the equation. I believe this comes dangerously close to saying that true believers can walk away from something God had given them, namely true faith, which is false. To walk away from true faith would be to lose one's salvation, and that, my friends, is a breach of eternal security, a doctrine we know that is true. In any case, the concept of apostasy has arisen in our studies a few times in this series, so it's about time that we spend a little more time on the topic. In the grand scheme of our curriculum, we might say that the Spirit will be using this as a lever to increase your sense of grace and sanctification. Remember, sometimes things get a little brighter when you have the contrast of darkness. Some things get a little harder when you have the contrast of coolness. And so when He gives us both sides of the equation like this, we have a greater context. And that might help us even as believers. In other words, he wants you to realize the following up here on the board. Grace realities, salvation and sanctification. This is that big picture that the Spirit's trying to weave into our studies. Salvation and sanctification are simultaneously awarded as realities. In other words, if a person is saved, they are sanctified positionally and guaranteed sanctification experientially. What did we learn at the beginning of this series? If you're saved, you will, not maybe, you will bear fruit. Otherwise, you need to check yourself in the mirror. And fruit is not you having faith in your faithfulness to go to church. That's not good fruit. We're talking real fruit here, folks. So they are sanctified positionally and guaranteed sanctification experientially. To God, these are simultaneous realities. You have to think that way. That To God, sanctification is like one thought. He says, you have a humble heart, I'm going to give you the ability to repent, to believe, to have faith, saving faith. And when I do all that, you're going to be sanctified. Set apart for me. Not just at salvation, but thereafter. Philippians 1.6. I'm not some bum who's going to walk out on you afterwards. I'm omnipotent, all-powerful. If I say I'm going to sanctify you, guess what? You're sanctified as far as I'm concerned. And it's past tense for him. But I still speak as a human being. I hope you understand. To God, sanctification is like, done. Done. That's why a weak gospel that says, "Well, you can be saved but not sanctified, is garbage, is no good. That's like calling God a liar. But that's the gospel a lot of people peddle, as we've learned. Therefore, again, salvation and sanctification are simultaneously awarded as realities. In other words, if a person is saved, they are sanctified positionally and guaranteed sanctification experientially. To God, these are simultaneous realities. Therefore, apostates, since they fail to be sanctified experientially, cannot possess true faith positionally. It's the same reverse order litmus test, let's call it, that the Apostle John put us through in his epistles after his name. In other words, he says it's going to be easy. Children of the devil, children of God, they're going to be easy to identify. Why? One has love, one doesn't. In other words, by studying the details of apostasy, we shall see that there's no such thing as a falling away from grace. God will kill a believer, which, frankly, is his final form of grace as sin unto death. He'll kill a believer before he stops pouring grace upon their laps. However, God will also harden the heart of an apostate. Did it with Pharaoh? Read Hebrews 4 or 6, 4 to 6, etc. He will harden the heart of the apostate. Individuals who he gave a chance to. This is the very best I've got. And they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. so apostates apostates are unbelievers who formerly professed to be believers isaiah 29:13 compare that it's quoted in mark 7:6 matthew 7:18 to 23 13 24 to 30 hebrews 6:4 to 6 10 26 to 29 second 2 peter 2:1 2, to 3 first john 2:19 and all that compare against second corinthians 13 So there's no shortage of Scripture on apostasy, folks. For the sake of getting ourselves situated on the concept of apostasy, we'll need to nail down a working definition in some Scripture. So first, let me say this up front. I don't believe that a true believer can apostatize or apostatize. Only professing one. I think that's an impossibility, given what the Spirit's given us over the past couple of months. I don't believe a true believer. A professing one? Absolutely. But a true believer? I don't believe can apostatize. Only a professing one. I'm pretty sure some of you have thought otherwise. So rather than just take my word for it, let's consider the abundance of Scripture in favor of what I believe to be true. First, let's start with what's on the board and the simple fact that there are always going to be false professors False professors are the seed of apostasy. They are the seed of apostasy. Eventually the seed bears fruit after how? It's kind. Allah, Luke 6. Go to Isaiah 29.13. Let's look at some scripture now. Isaiah 29.13. <clears throat> False professors are the seed of apostasy. Isaiah 29.13 There's certainly no shortage of Scripture on this topic of apostasy. I think most of the arguments come in whether or not a true believer can apostatize or not, which I just explained my reasons for it, but I want you to have your own personal convictions on the subject. Isaiah 29.13 Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. So they're faithful in their lip service, but their heart is somewhere else. They remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. So God's not interested in anyone's religion, in other words. Jesus quotes these professing individuals go to mark 7 6 mark 7 6 and all the spirit's really saying is listen let's not be ridiculous and fooled and to think that even right now right now in this church there could be someone whose heart has not changed who is quote unquote faithful to religion and yet isn't saved That's not a novel concept, folks. There's a lot of folks that profess to be believers, but aren't. Mark 7, 6, and he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. So we know there's a distinction there, folks. There's a lot of religious folks that aren't saved. But you can't necessarily see it. But God sees the heart, and that's why heart came up there. Again, on the board, false professors are the seed of apostasy. Eventually, the seed bears fruit after its kind. Go to Matthew 7.18. Matthew 7.18. Eventually, the seed bears fruit after its kind. Matthew 7.18. The Pharisees, obviously, are a great example. So Jesus uses them often. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Jesus knew there would be those who profess faith, you see, but were phonies. Verse 21. So he says it in plain statement. Not everyone who says to me, In other words, not every religious person, not everyone who's going through the acts of faithfulness, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. These are the religious folks. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me who practice, and that's a reference to fruit, who practice lawlessness. In other words, your fruit's bad. I see your heart. And when judgment day comes, I'm going to tell you, I saw your heart, and your heart was bad. It was arrogant, it wasn't humble didn't receive my grace. You just wanted to look good for yourself and for your family and your friends and go to church and be faithful and bring the pies and do all that kind of a thing. But you never ever said yes to me. We learned about the false professors in Jesus' parable of the wheat and tares which follows the soils. Go to Matthew 13, 24. Matthew 13, 24. So in this parable, which is really simple and easy to understand, he's saying that the wheat and the tares are going to grow up together and oftentimes, as was with the agricultural analogy here, they were indistinguishable. It's just one bore fruit and one didn't. Matthew 13, 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, "...the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man." who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. And tares, remember, looked just like wheat, even though they're a type of weed, and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up, gather them up? But he said, "No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn." Again, the point on the board those tares, in other words, look just like religious folk. They are religious folks. They look just like. They profess even to be believers, but they're not. Apostates are unbelievers who formerly professed to be believers. Go to Hebrews 6.4. Hebrews 6.4. We've been back here a couple of times in the last month. Hebrews 6.4 In other words, there are a lot of people who, to use that nautical analogy, too, with the anchor and the boat and all that kind of thing, there are a lot of people who sort of start down the road, and they start in the right, quote, unquote, direction. And think of Metzger with his conversion analogy. Conversion may take a little while. They start down the road. They hear truth. They might have a certain attraction to it. They might even have a certain emotionalism to it. But in the end, their heart is never changed, and they walk away. After hearing the gospel, that's who's in view. Hebrews 6.4, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. A little further in the book, go to Hebrews 10.26. Hebrews 10.26. Again, we're just rattling through the cited verses from the principal on the board. I want you to see this for yourselves. Hebrews 10.26. For if we go on sinning willfully... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the spirit of grace. It's not a good thing in one's heart to say no after receiving knowledge of the truth. And that's the distinction between the person who's just merely faithful and the one who's full of faith. The key to that passage is Hebrews 10.26, for if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, it is implied that apostates have knowledge of the gospel. Again, up here on the board, apostates are unbelievers who formerly professed to be believers as a falling away. Let's continue with our list. go to 2 Peter 2.1. 2 Peter 2.1. Second Peter 2 Peter 2.1. But false prophets also arose among, in other words, from within the people. False prophets arose among, from within, in other words, the people. That means, you know, it's the wheat and the tares thing. It's Listen, don't be surprised. When you find out someone you thought was saved, maybe, turns around and completely denounces Christ. That I don't believe a true believer can do. I just don't. I don't think the Scripture allows for it. I don't think the integrity of God allows for it. I think your heart is changed, just like Scripture says it is, if you're truly saved. But a person who's able to taste these things, profess they believe in Christ, but their heart isn't changed, is later on able to apostatize, to walk away with all that knowledge in tow, but with an unchanged heart. So don't be surprised, folks. And I think that's what the Bible allows for. Don't be surprised when you find out that there's a tear, there are tears among us. (laughs) And that eventually those tears, they run for a little while, to borrow from the parable of the soils, they run for a little while, and then the, emotional, the emotionalism piddles out because it wasn't really faith in Christ anyways, it was faith in their faithfulness, and then nobody's listening, nobody's watching me anymore. Don't they see me cooking all these these cakes? I'm out of here. They had faith in their faithfulness that they put their stock in those things, instead of Jesus Christ, no wonder they walk away. That never lasts. You don't come to church, especially not one like this, looking for approbation. You don't come to a church like this trying to impress your neighbor or try to be, quote-unquote, faithful. You're faithful because your heart is faithful. Because your heart, you have faith. And the fruit is faithfulness but it doesn't go the other way around. So, 2 Peter two one again, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because... Of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That's what false teachers do. They're not going to do what I'm doing for you this morning. I'm giving you truth. Why? Because it's truth that sets you free. A a person without Christ's heart functioning, that stands behind a pulpit, is going to do things for themselves. They're going to keep saying, Look at me. Don't read your own Bibles. Don't have your own convictions. I want to give you my convictions because then you're just a bunch of little puppets. You see? If you just take what I say as gold and I say you're too stupid to read your own Bible, so don't even bother, then now I have a bunch of puppets. I can do whatever I want with you, can't I? Doesn't that sound evil? <laughs> I can't even do that with a straight face. Right? But you you laugh, but there's a lot of wolves in sheep's clothing. Men who, when they're put to the test, even on public television, won't defend Jesus Christ or will completely annihilate the things that Jesus Christ stood for. And people love it because it caters to the flesh. It says, you mean you're giving me a a bunch of rungs I can run up and then I can be better than this person? Because, you know, I grew up with this insecurity that I was a loser. You know, all through grade school and high school. Nobody liked me, so I'll go to the church and I'll become a superstar. I'll be a rock star in the church. I was such a loser. You know, that entire system of thinking is garbage and Satan's laughing all the way to the bank? Saying, "I I got another one. We call that covert arrogance. That's the book I'm writing, by the way. Individuals who come to churches to make a name for themselves. Men and women even, ugh, that stand behind pulpits to make a name for themselves. That's all garbage, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Second 2 Peter 2.1 Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you With false words, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not sleep. Go to 1 John 2.18. One last supporting passage to the point on the board. And again, we are learning about apostasy for the sake of contrast, for the sake of understanding the whole landscape to amplify the parable of the wheat and tares, among others, to bring some other things together. 1 John 2.18 Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were never really of us. But what does that imply? It means they were in the midst of them. They were professors of the same faith. That's why people get together, after all. You don't look for fellowship with atheists, do you? So people share a certain faith, and that was what was in view with the shipwreck of the faith, the body of knowledge, if you would. People come together and say, yeah, we all agree on this body of knowledge. The problem is some that are in that gathering believe it and some don't. And the ones that don't, as soon as something that satisfies their fleshly lusts, like sensuality we just read, they're gone. And then they just morph their doctrines to suit their experience. And people go running right after them because they're like, yeah, you know, I'm a sensual beast myself. And I think I like this gospel The one that says there's no obedience. The one that says I can choose to be, you know, this completely carnal believer, quote unquote. I like that one. So I'm going to run over here. I'm going to become like that. Like this false teacher. The one that's teaching that stuff is okay. That God's perfectly okay. That God's not interested in forming at salvation a sense of obedience to the Lord. No, it's all optional. It's all optional. So do not be surprised my friends to see that garbage happen because when it blows up watch all the pieces where they fall. When something like that blows up watch who continues to seek Christ and who doesn't. Very quiet in here. They went out from us but they were not really of us for if they had been of us they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are, they all are not of us. Huh. Of course, then, if a true believer cannot apostatize, then our aim is to evangelize as many deceived people with the true gospel of Jesus Christ as possible. And as the Spirit's been getting back to time and again, we must all. Fairly at the outset, ensure that our own faith isn't spurious. Go to 2 Corinthians 13.5, which is the last verse quoted there. Second Corinthians 13.5. At the outset of this, one healthy endeavor is to look yourself in the mirror and say, am I the real deal? Am I changed? Do I have real faith? That's between you and the Lord. As I've taught, if you do, you're going to be assured of it anyways. 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves, another assayer's term. dokimazo. test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, parazzo, another assayer's type term. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail the test? We'll need more time on this, obviously, but Jesus was forever aware of the simple presence of apostasy. He was, and he taught about it, and so we ought to learn about it. Apostasy is, quote, a way of life when you're in a church. I have to consider those things all the time. I don't point fingers because I never know. But I have to understand the basic principle that it does exist, and it could even exist, in my church. How do I know? I mean, we've had, I don't know what the number is, but we've probably had 100, 200% of the people sitting here this morning come through the church and leave. How many of those were apostates? I don't know. I have to assume that some of them were. Some of them weren't serious. Some of them have heard truth for the first time in their life, and they're like, yikes, I don't want that. I'm out of here. I like the church down the street where I can just be faithful and show up with my meat pies and prove my spurious faith to my neighbors because my heart is really arrogant. And I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing. Just saying. I have to realize that, and so should you, that those people exist in the churches. So we do need more time on this, but Jesus himself was aware of the simple presence of apostasy. In other words, the ability of professing believers to fall away from faith and suffer shipwreck, as Paul might say. We will do some more work on, that, uh, on all of this this upcoming week. But let's just close with a few thoughts. Seems he's giving us a little bit of a reprieve this morning. An hour and ten instead of an hour and thirty. Apostates had a profession of faith at one time but not the possession of faith. Apostates had a profession of faith at one time but not the possession of faith. Their mouths spoke something other than what their hearts believed. Apostasy is not loss of salvation, but evidence of past pretension. Again, apostasy is not loss of salvation, but evidence of past pretension. In this basic sense, it is reserved for unbelievers only. Jesus himself said in John 18, 9, Part B, Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Amen? Let's bow our heads. I'd like to dedicate the closing moments of today's message to those who are without Christ and therefore are without hope. John 3, 16 states, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, That whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If you are indeed without Christ at this moment, know this. Have faith in this and embrace this as solemn truth. Acts 16.31 Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. If you do believe that you need a Savior and you're repentant of your sinfulness, then accept the free invitation that is Christ Himself and be saved. If you just believed for the very first time, I'd like to welcome you to the family of God. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for another day to worship you and the fellowship of those who break bread together, who thirst for truth, and long to dine on the bread of life, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us this place up on a beautifully selected plot of land in a free country, Constructed not just of wood and nails, but of love and grace. Thank you for binding us together as family when the world seems to have lost sight of family altogether. Thank you for keeping the unity of the faith circulating among us, for it is truly a beautiful thing. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name that we do pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you.